welcome to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast taking behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. My name's Michael Dooney, director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery and host of the show. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Georgina Adam. Georgina is a journalist and author who for the past few decades has written about the interactions of art and finance. From 2000 until 2008, she was the art market editor of the art newspaper, where she is currently the editor-at-large. She's a contributor to the Financial Times Life and Art section, lectures at Sotheby's and Christie's Institutes in London, and is the author of three books, The Big Bucks, The Explosion of the Art Market in the 21st Century, Dark Side of the Boom, The Excesses of the Art Market in the 21st Century, and most recently, The Rise and Rise of the Private Art Museum. We spoke about how the art market has changed in recent history, including the emergence and dominance of contemporary art, how the art world and art market have been diverging, as well as the various cultural, economic and global political factors that have influenced both the art world and related markets. We do speak a little bit about NFTs, so I should point out that our conversation was recorded in November 2021 when cryptocurrencies and NFTs were still at their peak. Obviously, a lot has changed in the last 12 months. However, I don't believe this makes what we spoke about any less relevant. With that being said, and without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Georgina Adam. First of all, thank you so much for meeting with me. I feel it's quite a privilege, actually, to speak with somebody who's had such a long career in the art world, the art market, and I think has taught me a lot about the art market and made a lot of the industry, made me aware of the industry. Because when I very first started, I never anticipated having to learn about this thing called the art market. And when you started in the 1990s, it was also a completely different environment. So after, I suppose, being in the field for 30 years now, how did it start out for you? Well, thank you very much for hosting me. I'm (laughs) delighted to talk to you. It's true that the art market is a very different place today than it was when I started. And I think 30 years is possibly on the low estimate side. It's probably nearer 40 nowadays. And I think the art market was a much less complex place than it is today. For a start, there were fewer art fairs, definitely fewer. And the art fairs that were still pretty fashionable were the ones that dealt in antiques old master paintings and so on, which have very much, the prices have gone down a lot in that field and they've just sort of faded from view. Whether it'll ever come back, particularly antiques, I just don't know. I don't think in my generation. Contemporary art was not the sort of thundering herd that it is today. I mean, contemporary art has absolutely taken over and it certainly wasn't the case when I started out. And I think what I'm particularly seeing this century, and this is a really recent phenomenon, is a sort of parting of the ways between what art is conceived of, a blurring of its function, a blurring with luxury goods, and a parting of the ways between the art market and validation through museums. And you have artists now who are extremely expensive, who have no museum validation whatsoever. And this doesn't seem to stop anybody buying them. And I think that's really interesting. I think the other thing is that when I started out, basically, the art market was galleries and auction houses. And each of them stayed in their lane, in a sense. Auction houses auctioned and galleries did Well, primary and secondary, they sold art, they promoted their artists. Auction houses, of course, have now attempted to move as much as possible into that field. That's a recent thing, isn't it, with the auction houses? 
that recent. I mean, it goes back a good 10, 10 yeah. years. Oh, yes. If you look at the private sales of auction houses, that's been going on for quite a long time, but also lending against art. And in fact, as I said in one of the books, Christie's doesn't even call itself an auction house. They call themselves the art business, but neither of them want to be perceived just as auction houses because they offer so many different things. And of course, they sell directly to the client. And today, what I find really interesting is that you have this sort of fracturing of the art world. Obviously, you have fairs that came in and grew enormously. There's a bit of a question mark about art fairs since the pandemic, because a lot of them had to be cancelled. And then they've, when they've come back, people are not travelling so much, so they tend to be a bit smaller and more domestically focused. But you also have initiatives, a sort of a parallel market growing up with other initiatives online mainly. And then, of course, technology has had an enormous impact. And what we're seeing now is the impact of things like Instagram. So cutting out these traditional gatekeepers completely. Yeah. Going from the artist directly to the collector. And, of course, the dreaded NFTs, which has been the topic du jour for, you know, this year, really, only this year, because they're making enormous prices. Yeah. But they're very linked to cryptocurrency. And finally, the other thing that I've noticed is this really increasing financialization, commodification, financialization of the market, commodification of art, which is now regarded as an asset class. And I have to say that as a baby boomer and coming from the traditional art world, I really regret the emphasis on money that we see today. Yeah. And when did you see that maybe starting? There was always the money. I mean, investment in art, if you go back to this famous La Peau de l'Ours, which dates from the early 20th century, and this was a group of people who invested in art and then resold it. And there has always been this feeling that art could be sold at a profit at some point. So it was always there. I don't think you could say this is new, but I think what is new is banks establishing art departments Although they're very careful always to say that they don't advise their clients on buying, but they will advise on collection management and so on and okay, so yeah. forth. They're very careful to say they don't advise <laughs> on buying because, of course, they don't want to be caught out. I think the rise of free ports is also connected with this because if you buy something purely as an investment, you want to put it somewhere safe until you bring it back out and resell it. I mean, the financialization, I think, is an accelerating trend and I suppose this century – and was that connected to when contemporary art maybe took over from old masters, from antiquities and from what well, maybe we say we traditionally viewed as art? That's an interesting point. I'd never actually thought about that. I think that just sort of they went, it went in parallel with the growth of the market. And I think it's also connected with the fact that interest rates have been very low for a long time and that therefore... Anybody who's got money, fund managers, family offices, have looked, A, to diversify their investments, but also to look at something where they could get growth. Yeah. And the top end of the market has seen growth. Of course, the overall market, because I think it's always important to emphasize there's not one art market. Yeah. There's lots of different ones. I tend to write about the very top end, which concerns a very small number of artists who are perceived really like stocks and shares almost. And that end of the market, the very top works have done very well. And this is why there has been this interest. 
plus, of course, this whole crypto phenomenon, which that the crypto phenomenon is really in the last five years. If yeah. That. Going back, though, definitely I want to talk about the NFTs, what the impact that has had and how it's being presented and how mm. it's being spoken mm. about. I guess when you entered as a art market reporter, now contemporary art auctions are like a star-studded event, like mm. they're the things that people want to watch. In the 90s, I guess that wasn't really the case, was it? I remember when Christie's very first had a sort of headline sale of contemporary art and they put out what was considered to be rather an edgy catalogue because instead of being the sort of the usual um, shiny book that you used to get, I think it had ring binding on it. Yeah. I think I've got it here somewhere. <laughs> and was that 1998 or even later than that? I suppose that it comes along with this whole explosion of contemporary art with the Saatchi Gallery in Boundary Road. That's what I was wondering, yes. whether or not, is it the YBAs and that kind YBAs, of generation? YBAs, Tate, yeah. Tate opening. So I think it's difficult to pinpoint a single moment when this happened. But definitely, and the auction houses, I mean, basically what they were faced with, they were faced with a declining inventory in traditional art, in art by any dead artist, because there's no way that you can increase the supply of work by an artist who's dead no. legally. <laughs> <laughs> you can fake it. Yeah. But, uh, so they were casting around. And of course, any book, any historian of the art market will talk about the famous skull sale. Robert Skull was a New York taxi driver who'd bought a lot of contemporary art. And then to the astonishment and to the outrage of the artists who'd sometimes given him big discounts, he put it all into auction and did unbelievably well. And there's lots of anecdotes about, you know, virtually a fisticuffs between him and some of the artists yeah. concerned. But then between 1973... And really, the 1990s, there wasn't much movement on contemporary art. And it's not as though contemporary art wasn't part of popular culture, like people like Andy Warhol, Salvador Dali. Mm. There's always been big personalities mm. around contemporary art that people have been drawn to. I think one of the problems was that it was the nature of contemporary art in the 1970s. It wasn't very saleable. It was minimalist. And then you arrive in the 1980s, and you suddenly get a completely different sort of art. You get a lot of painting. And this was a period of economic boom. You get Julian Schnabel, who becomes a bit of a star. What else happens in the 1980s? And suddenly art, contemporary art, becomes more saleable. But for the auction houses, and that is, of course, the visible end of the art market, really it's not until this – well, there wasn't exactly a light bulb moment. It was a sort of an accumulation of things. One was the auction houses realising that if they were to grow their business, they had to do two things. First of all, they had to sell art where there was supply. And yeah. supply was not the case as far as, on the contrary, museums were buying the best old masters and impressionist works. So they had to look somewhere else. And then in 1998, you have François Pinault, who is a collector of contemporary art, who buys Christie's and certainly puts an impetus into it. So it's a gradual process. And the sort of art that was on offer became much more saleable as well. Yeah. And it just became more more fashionable. Art began to creep much more into the public consciousness. More collectors emerged, driven a bit by François Pinault and others. Do you think as well, and well, I feel there is a, a kind of luxury market of art and people look at it more for its maybe clout value but I was wondering before on the way over like parallel to the 
art market and just in society at large, is the rise perhaps of contemporary art as a commodity also linked to wealth inequality and that there's more people now, well, a growing number of people at the higher end of, let's say, the economic ladder and they need things to spend their money on. Would that have also contributed perhaps to Christie's and to these other companies sort of pushing it in that direction that we need more things to buy? Because if we're running out of old art, we need new art to move around. So there's a lot to unpack in that question. But I think that you're almost at the absolute fundamental nugget that was so important was that Christie's is a luxury goods company. Yeah. And I think, I believe that the rise of the luxury goods is a phenomenon, mm-hmm. which didn't, when I was, I'm a boomer, didn't really exist in the post-war period. Because I guess with we fashion and everything, goods. it wasn't really the same either, no, was it? No, there were a few companies like Hermes that were really uh, catering to a very exclusive clientele, but this was a tiny proportion of people. And remember that a lot of the world was cut off. I mean, Russia was still under communism. China, don't even talk about it. I mean, the mid-20th century, China was undergoing the throes of the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. So those are two huge, potentially collecting areas. And India, which is also huge, was it's still mired to an extent in poverty, but it was certainly not involved. And the Middle East hadn't grown that. So all of those potential markets didn't exist oh, at okay, the that's beginning. That's a good point. Think yeah. about that. And I personally think that the growth of luxury goods, the way they're marketed, mirrors to a large extent the art market. Yeah. And I think that this is an accelerating trend. It's a situation that suits both sides. For the luxury goods, if they can sort of hitch their wagon to art, it sort of improves it, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, it, this is not just a handbag, but it's a handbag designed by Murakami. This is not just a dress, but it's a dress designed by, I don't know, I'm trying to think of somebody who's done, but there are yeah. lots of artists who've designed dresses. So for them, I mean, there's this thing about the symbolic meaning of art. And so they're sort of, to an extent, catching on to that. For the artist, because it gives great knowledge of their work. And then, of course, when you have the end after 1990, when you have the fall of the Berlin Wall, when you have China in which there's a liberalization and they're allowed to leave Maoism behind, to leave purely communism behind, certainly as far as economics are concerned, not politically. All of a sudden, you have these huge populations that come into a market who are hungry to have prestige items to show their success. Yeah. So the luxury goods market fulfills that desire, this desire to show off. On top of that, you very rightly talk about wealth inequality. And that's very, to my mind, extremely important. For a start, you have growing wealth in places like China, which have got huge populations. But at the top end of the scale, there are a few things that you can spend an enormous amount of money on that becomes a trophy. Yeah. There aren't that many. Apparently, Ferraris, I'm not interested in cars, but apparently you have to get on the waiting list, you have to know the dealer and so on. So the Ferrari, as far as a yacht is concerned, you can have a huge yacht. It takes a while, but you can have it. But you can't 
easily get a really top hole work of art. And of course, the ultimate example of that is Salvador Mundi. Yeah. For all its faults. Yeah. It was the only, I mean, there is one other Leonardo that could potentially be sold, but there are some question marks about it. I'm thinking about the Madonna with the yarn winder, which belongs to a Scottish duke. But there are a few question marks over it, as indeed there are about Salvador Mundi. But that sort of shows that something that is totally unique can command a colossal price because it gives you these bragging rights. Yeah. It's a sort of billionaire's playground, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a way of signaling. I mean, I read somewhere I didn't write this myself. I wish I had. It's sort of like having a check hanging on your wall, isn't it? You put up, for example, a Damien Hirst spot painting. It's recognizable. It gives you cred amongst those who come into your house. And it also says, I can spend a million pounds or whatever. Yeah. Depending on, of course, spot paintings is possibly not a very good example because there's so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, you're completely right. I think the growth of the art market does reflect inequality. And we now have this new phenomenon, of course, as well, of a lot of young Asians coming into the market who are bringing in very different cultural references and a very different attitude to art. But old Europe, old America, you know, perhaps we have to acknowledge that things are changing. Mm. Yeah, because I wonder as well with the generational shift, even in terms of interests and what people would be attracted to. I guess one thing that comes to mind is the how the art world has, for better or worse, struggled to capture the tech market. But when I look at it from a, like if I kind of step back from it in terms of a, I have art that I want those people to, sp- mm. to buy, they have a lot of money. How come they're not buying art with it? Mm. But then if I think about it from who the people are, they're not families of doctors and architects. They mm. didn't grow up going mm. to galleries. Absolutely. They don't have the same cultural reference mm. point. Mm. And maybe that's, that would explain why perhaps a lot of these people have jumped onto a lot of digital art because they grew up playing video games. They grew up with television and they grew up with a different kind of cultural knowledge for what is important to them. So in a sense, I feel like it makes sense that the tech people haven't really jumped on art yet or haven't embraced it as much as people had hoped because maybe it's not as interesting for them. Like they'd rather spend the money on a car or on a yacht or something else because why do I want a painting in my house? Even in terms of contemporary art, they don't have the same cultural reference points or even societal reference points. Like how can I show off to my friends what this is? They don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. You don't have that same upbringing. And that's maybe shifting now a little bit as well with younger generations for what they're interested in. But how do you think then that fits in with the art history and the art market? Because it does feel like they're very separated and now probably more than ever, it does feel like they're two parallel things that coexist but have less influence over one or another. Well, you've nailed it again. I think that firstly, you've got a younger generation. Remember that we're also talking worldwide. So the cultural references of Europe and America, which often were based on religion, you know, traditionally, they're completely different for a Chinese person, an Indian person, a Middle Easterner. I mean, their religions are different. In the case of Islam, although representation, figurative representation is not banned, it's often thought, but it's not entirely true. Nevertheless, they're quite comfortable with quite a narrow range of things that can be done and abstraction. 
Which is one of the reasons abstraction has been so popular, because you can put it anywhere, basically, and it goes anywhere. So that's the first thing. Secondly, one of the things that I always say, and I think it's very interesting, is that a lot of wealth today is self-made. And it's made by younger people as well. You know, you've got tech billionaires who are in their 30s and sometimes occasionally in their 20s, which is incredible. So they didn't grow up in any sort of a collecting ethos. They probably weren't taken to museums as children. And I interview collectors quite a lot. And I always ask them about the family background. And the vast majority say, oh, no, no, my family didn't have the sort of money. We weren't able to go to museums. It wasn't part of our environment. It wasn't part of our world. And as you say, I think that this gaming aspect is really important as well for two reasons. First of all, because those visual references come from gaming, but also they're accustomed to buying things in a virtual world. Mm. And that's a big change. Yeah. I don't play, I'm afraid I don't play games, (laughs) but I understand that you can say buy a sword or something like that. So it doesn't seem strange to them at all. And this, of course, is the phenomenon linked to cryptocurrencies. And I think we really need to talk about this because this is important. But this is the phenomenon of NFTs. They're a completely different group of people who are buying NFTs and who are forcing prices extremely high. But most of them have never been in the traditional art world and probably are not interested. Most of them, not all of them. Now, the big question is, will they eventually... You might say progress or you might just say move on to a more traditional art world. Mm -hmm. And I think the jury is out on that at the moment. We don't know. Certainly the traditional art world looks at most of the art that they buy. You might call it crypto art, you know, or digital art and, and shudders because they're baffled that you could really like these often very manga inspired works of art. But young Koreans, for example, that's what they're buying. Yeah. I think even for me, I guess as a child of the 80s and as a teenager in the 90s, Mm. like I can kind of see a lot of the different references, but at the same time, maybe having that interest in traditional art and even, yeah, from a contemporary standpoint, I really struggle to see what the, like what the long-term relevance of a lot of it is. And I think, like I see it at the moment the same way that I would see any kind of collectible, like baseball cards or basketball cards or things that you would collect as a child not to say that these are naive objects, but at the same time, what relevance do they have in five, ten years? And even the way that a lot of them have produced, I've seen videos on YouTube where people say how to produce 10,000 NFTs in under an hour, mm. like, and then what? And mm. then just sell them off for two or three mm. cents each in the hopes that you will make a lot of money. Like it does seem really disconnected from the idea of cultural heritage or any kind of intellectual exchange. It's mm. just or here's something else that I can sell, or here's something that I can buy. Most of the market, I mean, the market for NFTs is is very complicated because it's not one market. And most of it doesn't concern art. Most of it are collectibles and things like that. And the people who are buying it on the whole are just looking to make money. I mean, that's the GameStop phenomenon. You know, with a very low investment, you can get into this and then you exit and make some money. And people are sort of looking all the time for these bargains to buy in and out. So the FT art section is much smaller. I personally agree with you. I I think that it's not going to have much cultural relevance. I think it will be looked back upon and a few will be looked back upon as being significant because they have broken ground. And after all, 
technology has disrupted the art market in the past, for example, photography. You know, that was a big disruptor. And now we totally accept that photography is an art form. And you do have some very significant artists now making NFTs. Of course, the NFT is really just, it's really just a certificate of authenticity for a digital asset, basically. Yeah. That's all it is. A certificate of ownership and authenticity for a digital asset. And we did need something because we do live in a more digital world and we did need something that said, this is mine and of course I can resell it, which is an important aspect of it. But I do need to come back to this aspect of cryptocurrencies because an enormous number of people who are buying NFTs are people who have cryptocurrencies. And cryptocurrencies are not that easy to exchange. So you've made a lot of money on crypto. For a start, if you convert it back to fiat, to pounds, dollars, whatever your home currency is, so to speak, you will pay tax on those gains. Yeah. So people want to avoid that. And also, I understand, I've never done it myself because I don't have a digital wallet, but the fees are quite high to actually exchange back. So in a sense, if you've made a lot of money on cryptocurrency, the ideal is to sort of remain within that world and buy an asset which you hope will go up. And since a lot of people are piling in, I think that it's sort of self-fulfilling. Yeah. How long will it last? That's the big question. And do NFTs have a long-term future? I, I do think they do. As a facility? As a faci well, as, as I said, as a certificate of ownership and authenticity for a digital object. At the moment, the art, most of it is really awful, quite frankly. <laughs> really awful. No, I, I agree. Uh, you can't. I mean, I'm sure that there are some good things out there. But the other problem is that you have to wade through such an enormous amount of stuff in order to identify, you know, perhaps a good work of art. I think that man is naturally acquisitive. Man, as in mankind, men and women are naturally acquisitive. And that actually owning a physical thing will always have its attractions. So I don't think that NFTs and the digital sphere will take over. I think there'll always be a desire to have Yeah, like a physical object. Have the physical object. And I think we're seeing that in general anyway. Well, I mean, I suppose there is a minimalism movement, but I was saying even to my wife today that it's sometimes rather than having a lot of average or mediocre things, just have fewer high value things mm -hmm. and just have things that you can really appreciate and that you can hang on to for a long time rather than throwing them away. It goes both ways because there is also a movement today against owning things. For example, cars. People will use Zipcars ah, or yes. Uber. So there's that. There's a movement away from having your own office, you know, shared spaces, the WeWork phenomenon. And there's an interest in experiences over owning things. Experiences are very important. In its worst manifestation, in my opinion, are all these Van Gogh experiences that, you know, have mushroomed all over the place in which there's not a single work by Van Gogh. It's just photographs that are blown up and move around with music in a tent somewhere. <laughs> They've proved to be very popular. This is slightly entre parenthèses, as the French say. I do think it's kind of sad because if you enjoyed a Van Gogh experience in a tent in a park and then you want to trot off to a museum and actually look at one, you might be disappointed because it's going to be smaller than you expected mm -hmm. and it's static. And I'm sort of frightened that in a way that undermines, you know, that when you take away the bells and whistles of the experience, that yeah. confronting art. So one hopes 
that people who go to these experiences that will lead them to look at more traditional art. But I'm not convinced it's going to be the case. No. And have you noticed that? Because I think that's a really good point as well, that art does seem to be moving towards an experience economy rather than a buying and owning economy. Like, how do you think that is going to affect? Well, maybe rather than asking that, when we're talking about NFTs, talking about the market and that the market is a series of sub-markets mm. and we've spoken a lot about what is happening at the, the higher end yes. of the field mm. and that is, I guess, due to its nature, what gets the most attention. If you're a an artist that's graduated from university or from mm. college or you've been working for a few years or you're a younger gallery, like how relevant is or how much should you know about the market itself? I suppose for establishing yourself to say, this is what I want my career to be, how realistic is it or how much do you need to know maybe to navigate that? There's some quite good books out there now about understanding. And I would certainly recommend any young artist who's just graduated to read a couple about the market just to understand what's going on. I think it's important that they should understand because if they want to make their livelihood as an artist, they need to understand what are the structures. As I've said before, there's not one market. When we talk about the very top end, it's not relevant to most people. It's relevant to a few rich people. And it's relevant to a very small group of artists who have, to come back to something you said, some of them really are producing luxury goods these days rather than, I mean, somebody like Damien Hirst, Jeff Koons. uh, I could name Tracy Eamon with her video, uh, not videos, with her neons that say things like, I have always loved you. You know, I'm sorry, but that's not (laughs) art. That is just, it's just a luxury good and totally neutral. So you can put it anywhere. I mean, who's going to object to a phrase like that? So these are artists who've made their careers become established and, and are now churning out, quite frankly, luxury goods. They're churning out commodities. So let's leave them aside and talk about the younger artists. And I think there is still a market for the younger artist who's doing something. But I think it's quite interesting that a number of artists like Carsten Holler are producing art that you interact with. And I went to the graduation show of a number of London art schools uh, here at the Saatchi Gallery yesterday. And one person had a video, but she'd made a little sort of tent to sit in. It was actually like a little hut, really. So that's quite interesting because a video, well, there's lots of videos out there, aren't there? But the fact that she sort of created an experience was interesting. And I think that perhaps that's the way artists are going to go. It's not about creating an object that you hang on the wall. Although I was quite surprised how much was flat art hanging on the wall. And the other thing that I noticed and I was really pleased about actually was the use of textiles in a lot of art. There were quite a few things that were made with textiles, with hangings, and I thought that was rather nice. I liked the fact that it was on the wall, but it wasn't a painting, but it sort of, you know, it was an art object that was that was made. And one was made with Vietnamese brushes. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah. I thought that was quite encouraging. So when then, like thinking back to what we spoke about earlier, over the, let's say, the past 20 years, Do you think we're seeing or we're witnessing the emergence of an art industry rather than like an art world or a market in the same way that perhaps the film industry or the music industry was transformed over a few generations? Are we just 
in a way, seeing that happen with art, that it's not just for a select group of people, but it's more that we have an experience economy, we have large institutions, we have people that want to spend a lot of money on very exclusive objects. Is it becoming an entire... Is that the only? What you mean, is that the future only? Not necessarily only, but are we seeing, in a sense, maybe a corporatization of the art market and the art world due to like globalization and being able to serve an international marketplace? I think you're right and you're wrong in the sense that we are seeing that at the very top end. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that it's going to eliminate everything else. I don't think so. Because nevertheless, the prices that people are going to be able to spend if they go to some of these, to, you know, Gagosian and States, it's out of most people's. Yeah. So there's always going to be a need for an art market at a very much lower level, mm-hmm. you know, in the tens of thousands, possibly even under. Yeah. And I think that will survive because there will be demand. I think the problem, I mean, this is, I'm not the first person to say that the, the big danger is really the mid market. Yeah. The smaller galleries are fine because their overheads generally are very low. They can get talent because there are young artists. They just have to have a good nose for who, who is likely to do well. But those artists will need at some point to move up the food chain. Exactly. So they need somebody in the mid before and those who really make it possibly move on to the very big boys. So I think you're right. I think at the top end, there is this corporatization. I think that they're really not selling art anymore in a way. They're selling names, they're selling prestige, they're selling trophy objects, you know, all the things we've discussed. But I think let's not forget that most artists, even if prospects are much better today than they were for artists, say, 40, 50 years ago, it's going to be tough for most of them. And not that many of them will be able to make their living. They'll have to teach or do something else as well in order to make a living. Yeah. As far as the art they produce is concerned, you know, I went to this show yesterday and they're doing so many different things and you just, it's so difficult to figure out, well, which one of these is going to be, you know, the, I won't say Damien Hurst tomorrow (laughs) because that's an insult in my word, in my language today, is going to be a successful artist. Yeah. I think also, and I think it's necessary to know, even if, a young artist is not concerned. It's necessary to know that there is market manipulation and that there are artists who are made for the market, supported by the big galleries and the collectors who've already got their works. I mean, it's important to know that people borrow money against their art, Mm -hmm. that they will need to support that artist's prices in order to justify the loans they've taken out against that art. There's a whole world going on in there. And I think it's even for a young artist, it's important to know what's going on. Yeah, I think that's what I was wondering or what I mean by artists, at least to understand Mm -hmm. how the industry or how the marketplace is functioning. Yes, Because I know when I do small amounts of teaching to help artists get their foot in Mm. and understand Mm. how do I navigate this world. I think in the last UBS report, the art market was valued at sort of 50 billion globally. It was 60. For 2020? Oh, no, no, you're right. 50. Yes, it's gone down to 50. It It dropped down to 50. So it always sort of hovers between 50 and 70. Yes, that's right. Which sounds like a lot of money. It's not that much. But relatively Mm. speaking, it's... Not really a great deal, is it? Because like Louis Vuitton is sort of 15, 17 billion. Absolutely. For one yes. company. Yes. And this is the whole market. 
Yeah. Yes, like- and, and it's not grown that much either, which is an interesting aspect because does that actually mean that despite this huge increase in wealth, the art market is not capturing much more of it? Of course, overall, it hasn't grown. I mean, it went down, obviously, in pandemic year, but before that, it was hovering between 70 and 60. But in 10 years, it hasn't grown, which is very curious because fortunes have grown enormously in that Mm. time. So what does that mean? When you look at the composition of sales, taking out COVID year, what's happening is the top end has done very well but the other haven't done as well. Mm-hmm. So you get the same figure but a different makeup with yeah. the high-priced works being a high, you know, a higher proportion of that figure. But it's true, it's not a huge market, the art market. Yeah. I think that's also important for a lot of people to understand mm. coming into the market because when we're only ever exposed to record auction prices mm. and I guess the wealth that surrounds that part of the industry – that is really only a tiny proportion of it. Mm. Well, yes. I guess in the terms of the number of people, it's only a small number of people. But, it but is they command still, like, yeah, the most. Yes, but they get all the heat and light just because I would have a hard time as a journalist selling to an editor a story about something that made a thousand pounds unless you've got a really good backstory that goes with it. Whereas, of course, something that sells for $450 million hits the headlines the world over and and continues, actually. That's the gift that keeps on giving because I'm still seeing articles. The front page of the art newspaper this month has got a Salvador Mundi story. Oh, really? It's (laughs) still doing the rounds? The Prado's downgrading it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then just quickly going back to the – or just touching again on the NFTs because a lot of the art market I guess famously people say that it's not very democratic and it's hard to get into and NFTs are supposedly democratising the art market. But Mm. I saw, I think, Annie Shaw had written, Mm. I think yesterday already Mm. about this, that it is almost reflecting what we already see in the art market, that 16 artists are generating 55% Mm. of the turnover and of the handful of people that are dominating the marketplace, only 16% of them are women. Are women. Absolutely. And I wonder how many are racially diverse as well. Because it is, it's a very, it's a sort of bro thing, isn't yeah. it? It's it's white males sitting behind their computers. And that's something that's got to be corrected. But it's curious because it, as you say, exactly, it's sort of in a way reflecting the traditional art market. Yeah. And when I saw those numbers, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Because, yeah, for one, I guess, who is buying it mm. but then even for who's making it and then what is it that's still keeping it in that same that same sort of framework that we're trying to dismantle mm. within the traditional mm. art world and mm. say no we need to have more women artists more presented diversity yes absolutely and then in this new all oh, the nfts will fix everything it's the same <laughs> it's, in fact it's worse because what we've seen recently in the traditional art world is that work by women artists and work by black artists and by black women artists have done extremely well at auction and have gone to 10 times estimate whereas the more traditional artworks which are of course much more highly priced they've tended to stay within you know the established price range that they were yeah. always in so there, there is an enormous interest and there's a lot of coll- – I interview collectors and there are a number of collectors who are collecting in that field. Mm-hmm. So there are collections of works by black women, women, 
and black artists that are being constituted, which is great. It's good. Yeah. And there's, of course, the museums as well, particularly in America, the new museum in Washington. One thing perhaps then we could close on is your new book, which has only recently come out, so yes. I didn't even know that it was available. I'll but... give you a copy before we leave. Oh, lovely. Before you leave, yes. <laughs> so the, the rise and rise of the private art museum. Exactly, yes. We spoke a little bit about how the art market and the art world are kind of like a Venn diagram that has a very small area mm, that overlaps. Mm, mm. What impact then, I guess, have you written about or have you discovered with this rise of private art museums and what impact they are having in terms of, let's say, cultural heritage mm. and relevance? Because mm. if it is just a group of people saying, we like this and we're buying it, that's why it's important rather than let's say, historians or curators. The validation, or the museum validation. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, this is a whole other conversation. But briefly, the reason I wrote this book was having written two books about the art market. I'm very interested in the interaction of art and money. And this is an absolute exemplary example of how these huge fortunes that have been made this century, because we are talking this century. Somebody told me, and I don't know how you can check it, that more museums are created this century than all the museums created previously. Wow. 70% of private art museums, according to a report I've read, were created this century. This is the way that very rich people, I mean, I think we say billionaires these days because you really do need a billion in order to establish your own museum. Not always, not always. I interviewed one or two people who didn't have a huge amount of money and they show their collection in their home you know, sort of house museums. But it really is a phenomenon of our century, and that is really interesting. And uh, there's a whole chapter about motivations, which is really interesting. Most of these people don't come from a collecting background. But what's interesting as well is that they, they want to maintain control of their collection. This is terribly important. They want to control it. They don't want to give it as would have happened in the last century or century before that, they don't want to give it over to a museum where it'll gradually be watered down, go into reserves, in America sold off yeah. because they do sell it. They deaccession in America, not nearly, I mean, hardly at all here. And when they do deaccession in Europe, there's a great outcry. But in America, you can have donated something to a museum and down the line see them sell it. Now, sometimes it's sold for good reasons because they want to increase the diversity of their collections, which is good. But it might make you stay your hand if you're thinking of giving to a museum. And in fact, an example I give is the Fisher Collection, which is a great collection built up by the Gap founders. They put very stringent conditions on their donation. And in fact, it's in theory, shouldn't be broken for 100 years. 100 years? Wow. How can you reach 100 years? I mean, yeah. it, there's no way that's going to last, in my opinion. And if you look at something like Barnes, that will was broken those instructions were broken. So people think, well, why not have my own museum? Mm. And they establish it. It's their collection. They don't have the constraints of a publicly funded museum as having to respond to different parts of the public. Because if something's publicly funded, then you your choices are not your personal choices. Your choices are choices of your creator's art history and so on. So you have a very different objective. The big question I ask, and this is the, the last chapter, is what is the legacy of these and what are the sustainability of these private museums? Because they're funded by somebody who may use it as well for promoting their own artists, the artists they rate, which is also impacts on the, on the art market. But that's also a different 
discussion is if is a high-priced artist the best artist? And that, I think, the art market skews us because when, for example, the Neuer Museum in New York bought that Klimt and paid a huge amount of money and they said, this is our Mona Lisa. Well, it doesn't make Klimt the best artist in the world, but no. at the time he was hailed. Anyway, to go back to private museums, I personally think that when the founder passes away, the private museum will have a struggle surviving because the children or the successors, the heirs, whoever they are, may not want to pay the same amount of money to keep it going because on the whole, they rarely cover their costs, you know, even if you charge an entry fee, which a lot of them do. But they're expensive things to have and to run. Who's going to do the buying? Because it's one thing for a collector to make his collection. and to, yeah. But are you going to delegate it to an employee? That's not going to be the same thing at all. Even if you leave an endowment, as Eli Brode did, he left a huge endowment, he left 200 million. That's never going to cover buying at the level that he was buying at. So I think that a lot of these private museums are destined either to go somehow or other into some sort of public ownership because the state may need to step in or just gradually to disappear. And in fact, a lot of private museums have disappeared. People don't realize this. But when I was writing the book and I was looking around, and there's, you know, I give quite a few examples of museums that no longer exist. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I know. It's a surprise, isn't it? Yeah. I think I call the chapter Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I mean, I've seen it even in my short stint in the art world with my gallery. A lot of other galleries in the neighborhood that had opened and closed even within five years. And why would a collection not be the same? That You've set up something and you think this is going to last for however long and then it re you re discover that it's actually a lot more work than you thought it was going to be. They're much more complicated to run than people think. In Africa, where a lot are being set up, you've got such basic things like, have you got electricity all the time? Can you keep the air conditioning on so to preserve the artworks? You know, such a small basic thing. People often don't think of that. People don't realise the costs involved creating, well, perhaps the collection exists, but maintaining a collection and maintaining the impetus. You know, how can you say what's going to happen in 30, 40 years? How do you know what art prices are going to be like. Now, you have some collections like Sir John Soane's, which is a capsule of what he bought, and it's in the house that he had it in. And that's great. That works. So that sort of museum, which has gone into state ownership anyway, that were, and some of these collections will be so good, the buildings, but I don't know what will happen to the Broad in, say, a hundred years' time. Will that still be relevant? Mm. And remember that contemporary art, because they're overwhelmingly always about contemporary art, is a fashion thing as well. In order to stay relevant, you've got to keep buying because otherwise you're just a capsule of early Yay. 21st century yeah, art. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, we could keep talking for hours. I know, but I know, but... I think we should cap it there. Yes, okay. It's been really lovely talking, Georgina. Thank well, you. Well, for... it's a pleasure. I think your questions and your reflections on the market are very profound. I'm, I'm very interested that you understand so much and oh, that you've you. thought so much about this because not everyone has. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Georgina Adam and the insights she shared about the contemporary art market. If you're curious to learn more, I'd encourage you to pick up one of her books on the subject and regularly read articles in the art newspaper. The $12 million Stuffed Shark by Don Thompson is another book I'd recommend which dispels a lot of myths about the art market and reveals a lot of how the industry functions. 
There is also a 2018 documentary directed by Nathaniel Kahn, who also directed My Architect about his father Lewis Kahn, called The Price of Everything, which treads the same top-end contemporary art market territory and shares similar insight. In the show notes, I've included links to some of the specific things we spoke about, together with where you can find Georgina Adam online. If you have any questions or feedback to what we discussed in today's episode of the podcast, you're welcome to reach out on social media or get in touch via email. Subtext and Discourse Art World Podcast is streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major podcast platform. If the insights shared in this and past episodes have taught you something, please leave a rating or review so others can also benefit from this knowledge. That's all for now. Thanks again for tuning in. My name's Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.